And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm honored to welcome Stacy Schiff to the program today for the first of a two-part interview. Stacy is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer who has published six books, as well as having her writing appear in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the New Yorker. Her books are saint Exploré, a biography, Vera, Mrs. Vladimir Nabokov, A Portrait of a Marriage, for which she won the Pulitzer, A Great Improvisation, Franklin, France and the Birth of America, The Witches, Salem, 1692, Cleopatra, A Life, and today we'll be talking about The Revolutionary, a biography about founding father Samuel Adams, which is published by Little Brown. Stacy, why is it that Samuel Adams doesn't have the same profile as other founding fathers like Jefferson, Franklin, and Washington? I think first and foremost, because he is truly the least vain of men. He's extraordinarily modest in a sort of deeply Calvinist way. He frowns always on ambition. And he prefers generally to be the recessive character, to be the behind the scenes player. And that was true certainly in his activities and also in the way that he imagined the revolution being portrayed later. This abstemious character, while many admired it, it did hinder him in his own time as well, didn't it? He definitely pays the price. He leaves the history to others. And I should say that, yes, he's very comfortable being recessive. John Adams will very much encourage him to gather his writings together. John Adams will say after the revolution, those 40 years of your papers are crucial to an understanding of what we've just survived. You really need to put them together. Everyone will be interested. And and Samuel Adams doesn't do it. But he does have the reverse privilege, if you can call it that, which is he reads how the history was going to be written. He reads the first histories of the revolution and discovers, needless to say, that they don't entirely match what his experience has been of those years. So it's a sort of graceless ending in the sense that his opinion sort of falls out of the picture as he falls out of the picture in part as well, because he's so much envisioning a different America from the one that's coalescing around him. He's really still bent on a on a world of simplicity and religion. And the world is careening, America is careening toward a very mercantile capitalist, federalist future in which he plays no role. Also, his bid toward operational security during the revolution hurt him because he was fastidious about not signing letters and keeping copies of those correspondences. For me, one of the most poignant scenes that comes down to us is John Adams's account of sitting in Philadelphia with Samuel Adams at one of the sessions of the Continental Congress and watching Samuel feed his papers to the fire. And John Adams says to Samuel, aren't you perhaps overreacting just a bit? And Samuel's reply is that he doesn't he doesn't want to compromise any of his Confederates, that he doesn't want anyone to suffer for his negligence. And on another occasion, John watches Samuel shred his papers into, into smithereens and sort of litter them out the window. So there's a lot of covering up the fingerprints. At one point, someone, in fact, one of his Confederates will stomp at his house when Boston is occupied by troops and Samuel is out of town in Philadelphia and cart away all of his papers so that, as the friend puts it, the vultures have nothing of yours on which to pray. Now, the epigraph for that first chapter in the book is a quote from Marianne Williamson, omissions are not accidents. Who do you think in the early days stood to benefit from Adams's marginalization? Oh, I think think he does it. It's very self-serving. On the one hand, it's the no fingerprints school of um, sedition. And on the other hand, it really is the, I am not vain. I don't intend to overly claim credit for anything that's that's happening here. There's one moment where he approaches something that we might consider vanity in a letter to his wife, where he writes from Philadelphia that he has trained himself to give up the sweetest pleasures in life. 
um, for the sake of his country, the sake of the public welfare. And then he catches himself thinking that that in itself is a vain statement and walks it back. So there really is just this very appealing modesty to the man. So late in the book, you write that John Adams considered his cousin Samuel Adams, John Hancock, and James Otis Jr. as the founding triumvirate. Did he give any further clarification on why he thought these three men should be singled out? I think that John Adams spends more time than anyone else involved in the revolution in assigning credit afterwards. He goes back over it again and again to sort of decide who the essential players were, who deserves the real credit. And two things. First of all, there's a sort of regional prejudice. He prefers the Northerners to the Southerners. And he will make a distinction later in saying that many actions had to be left to the South for political reasons. And that's the reason why the army was commanded by a Virginian, why the declaration was written by a Virginian, why the declaration was proposed by a Virginian, because those men seemed more moderate in their ways than the sort of hot-headed fanatics from New England. But he also will look very much to the early patriots, to, to Otis and to Samuel Adams, who really got the ball rolling as opposed to Washington and Jefferson, whom he considers something of the latecomers. So he really looks back to those 12 years that precede the revolution, which he describes, and I think quite accurately, as the real revolution, the revolution in hearts and minds that will precede the revolution in fighting. Those years from in which the colonies move from being spotlessly loyal, as they're called, to objecting to, to parliamentary authority. Now, what were the challenges you had in not having his letters preserved? And so you kind of had this negative space and you have to to build his character from outside primary sources. What kind of challenges did you face in doing that? So there are certain things we can't ever fill in. And one of those for me, one of the great disappointments is the domestic scenario. There was apparently a 50-ish page memoir by his daughter about Samuel Adams, which was initially part of the Samuel Adams papers, which are now at the New York Public Library. But that family memoir does not seem to have survived, or at least it's no longer with the Samuel Adams papers. So of his domestic life, we have a very limited view. And then obviously the communications among Adams and his Confederates are sparse. He and Paul Revere, for example, must have been in constant touch. Paul Revere is very often serving as a patriot messenger. And I think we have two or three pieces of paper between the two of them. So one is left to work from two really, I think, terrifically fertile veins. One is the letters to him that are in that collection of letters in the New York Public Library, which demonstrate in many ways how far his contacts reached and how much loyalty there was to him, including the the gentleman who saved his papers, that kind of tribute to him. And also the other great sort of trove are what the Crown officials in New England are writing about him back to London. And those letters are extremely detailed. Obviously, they're, it's the job of the governor and lieutenant governor and the customs officials to be reporting on colonial affairs. And over and over, the great nuisance for them is the grand incendiary, the chief incendiary, the Machiavelli of chaos, Samuel Adams. So you have a tremendous description of what Adams is up to, not in his words, but in the words of the crown officials who feel so utterly betrayed by him, so flummoxed by him. What was the oddest path you had to take to get some of this information for the book? The material that goes back to Great Britain is sent in sort of quadruplicate. So it often turns up in various places. So some of it is in the parliamentary archives and some of it is in the public records office outside of London in Kew. And I think the parliamentary archives had pages that for some reason I did not also find 
in the queue archives. So I think those days were perhaps the most valuable. They're also just little bits of him that turn up in unexpected places. There's a there's an early letter, for example, in the Rhode Island Historical Society, where Adams is is clearly for, at a very early date reaching out to encourage some kind of union, at least among the New England colonies. And again, suggesting that an effort but the Sons of Liberty in another colony perhaps propose something because they won't look as radical as the Massachusetts men look. And that letter, so that letter was in Rhode Island. So just these occasional bits and pieces of him that happened to turn up elsewhere. There are a couple of letters in Chicago. There are some letters in the Library of Congress. So how did his papers end up at the New York Library as opposed to Boston or maybe at Harvard University? The Samuel Adams letters appear to have been part of the great Bancroft collection, and the Bancroft collection, and I don't know when Bancroft acquired them, but that that collection was given as one of the founding resources in American history at the New York Public Library. So they went along with that with that gift. One can read them on my on a screen. They're all they're all digitized at this point. He was born in 1722. What was the state of colonial relations with the Crown at that point in time? Well, in the early years, there's a, there's a really very pacific relationship. There have been a few kind of ruptures in goodwill, I guess one would call them. But there had been nothing particularly dire in those years. It isn't really until Great Britain begins to attempt to regulate and tax trade in the decades that follow that that you begin to see waves in the water. With the popularity of the modern beer that's named after him, how was his family actually involved in the business of beer? Only peripherally, in fact. His father, like his father before him, had been a malster, which was to say that he cured barley for the making of beer. And it was a business that had been tremendously profitable for the family. Samuel Adams grew up in a very beautiful home overlooking Boston Harbor. They had The family had its own wharf. There was an observatory on the top of the house. There was a garden that sloped down to the ocean. And it was a business that had been passed on from generation to generation. It was a very time-intensive business, a business that demanded a certain amount of skill. But by the time Adams had inherits it, for reasons we can talk about, it's a business which is on the decline. The curing of, of the malt is indeed his only connection to the beer brewing. Samuel Adams attended Harvard at a very young age. So did he already have designs not to go into the family business at that point? There's some hint that his father as well had been headed to Harvard, and then the family had fallen on, on some kind of, so there had been some sort of financial distress, and the, and the father did not end up going to university. It wasn't necessarily a diversion from entering the family business, the, the Harvard entry. It was more for someone of his status, of someone of his wealth, pretty much a natural step. And he does go at 14, but that was not entirely unusual at the time. He would not have been the youngest member of his class by any stretch. He earns a bachelor's degree. He earns a master's degree. And then if things had fallen out normally, he would then have entered the family business. And what turns out to have happened in fact, is that he seems to have had zero aptitude for any kind of commercial career. For a very brief period of time, he works in an accounting firm. A friend of his father's gives him a job, a very popular Bostonian. And Adams lasts for a few months, at the end of which it's observed by his boss that he has um, he's a perfectly able young man, but really has no head for anything other than politics, that he's really completely consumed by his political obsessions and um, is let go from that job. He seems to bounce around. He never really establishes a profession. And by the time he does inherit what's left of his father's business, he he seems to run it into the ground. You know, at various junctures, he will be forced to have to deal with numbers. He becomes, for a somewhat long period of time, in fact, a Boston tax collector, something he seems to have done 
you know, against all probability and for the money. And he manages, you know, the course of several years to run up a debt, which is something like eight times greater than the other bad tax collector in Boston. He just seems to be utterly inept when it comes to numbers. He seems to be the absolute worst pick to be a tax collector. The tax collecting thing, I'm assuming is something that he would have done for the money because at that point, he can't live on air. He has a family to support. And the way the tax collecting position worked in those years was that you got a premium on the taxes that you that you turned over to the town. So it, it wasn't exactly a substantial income, but you could earn basically what a schoolmaster earned by tax collecting. So it does seem to be something that he undertook out of duress as opposed to because anyone thought it was a good idea for Samuel Adams to be collecting money. It also stands to reason that he might have been appointed to the job because is isn't necessarily why he accepted it, but he might have come to mind for it because everyone understood that he would be a very inefficient collector of taxes. And also you said that many people would be selected to be tax collectors, but they would pay a fine to buy their way out of it. There were a lot of town offices that everyone pretty much shuffled as quickly as they could in the opposite direction to get out of having to serve in. And tax collector was, was the top of that list. And tax collecting was not something that Harvard graduates did. I mean, while he may have taken over the family business, his colleagues in the in the tax collecting years were were bricklayers and tavern keepers. They were they were not Harvard men. So that so it is a somewhat unusual. It's a departure of some kind for him to have taken on the position. He does it at a time of of economic distress as well in the town. There's been a terrible fire in his in his ward. There's been a smallpox epidemic. No one in Boston was particularly keen to pay taxes in the first place, but he's collecting at a particularly difficult time to be doing so. It's amazing how quickly, just a little over 100 years, that Harvard became such a identifier for the pecking order in the town. The hierarchical aspect of the Harvard classes was interesting to me in that your class rank was determined by who your father was and your father's position in the colony. And that determined pretty much every aspect of your schooling. It determined where you sat, where, where you had your meals, where you processed in a procession. Everyone was very much aware of, of, of everyone else's status in the class. And do you think that kind of led to his approach toward liberty and equality? You know, he would have been at the top end. He's, he's, he actually ranks higher in his Harvard class than did his cousin John in his Harvard class. Adams's father, Samuel Adams's father was justice of the peace, which put him up at the top third of his class. But I do think that there is an allergy to hierarchy. You know, we have very little from those early years, but the allergy to hierarchy, I would guess, begins fairly early. It's certainly quite pronounced in a matter of years. What was the familial relationship between John and his cousin Samuel? So John, John Adams is um, 13 years younger than Samuel. And contrary to, I think, to our sense of the two men, he's the country cousin. Samuel Adams grows up in Boston, John in Braintree, Samuel Adams among some kind of wealth, John in a farmer's cottage. But John, who's from, whose brilliance is, is obvious from, from a very early age, is quickly recruited by Samuel. The two of them don't seem to have met or seem to have spent any substantive time together until the early 1760s. And John tells us that from the first meeting, from the the earliest years that the two are in contact with each other, they're agreed in this idea that Thomas Hutchinson, who's at the time the lieutenant governor and will go on to become the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, stands as the greatest danger basically to to the public liberty. So the two of them really fall in sync. Samuel is clearly recruiting John the way he recruits John Hancock and Josiah Quincy and any other any other number of promising young men. But I would think that he I would say that he and 
that the two cousins are, that John is among his closest confederates, that Dr. Joseph Warren and John Adams are probably the two men with whom Samuel Adams is closest during these years. And they're second cousins, I should have added. Because of the colonial relationship with the mother country and the hard currency availability in the colonies became quite lopsided. And this started a major path of downfall for the family fortune. That's a point on which I think it's, I mean, I think it's very hard to divert from this particular incident, although we have no hard evidence of it. Essentially what happens is that Samuel Adams's father is one of nine men who helped to found a land bank in, in 1740, which is essentially a bank, a, a bank that establishes a currency secured by land to solve this, the, the, the shortage of specie in the colony because there's so little hard currency. And it's a it's an enterprise that is endorsed initially by the royal governor who thinks there really needs to be a solution to this problem. And that but that once this bank is established, once the land bank takes off, is immediately disavowed by the royal governor, largely because the merchant elite in Boston object to it. There had been a competing scheme to relieve the currency shortage. And those men, though that merchant elite, are not fond of this idea of a currency that they can't that is that they can't use just to resolve their London debts. It's not something that's going to help them in any way. So the then so the royal governor at that point writes to London and says, you know, we have this problem and treats it as if it's something that's going to completely undermine colonial undermine the colony and asks for it to be shut down immediately, which the land bank is. And in shutting down the land bank, which Parliament does in a very draconian fashion, the directors of the bank are made liable not only for their own individual debts, but for the bank's debts as a whole. So that it, with that act of parliament shutting down the land bank, Samuel Adams's father is effectively ruined. And it's from that ruin that he is unable to sort of get the family, get the business back up and running. And it's probably because of that, of that gesture that he has, that he ultimately takes the job as the tax collector. It certainly seems to have set him on, made him a little more sensitive, um, shall we say, to arbitrary acts of parliament. And both Thomas Hutchinson and John Adams will say that the land bank is the thing that puts Samuel Adams on the map. This unwinding of the land bank and the paying back of the investors, it stretches on for years and years and years. Exactly. I mean, it's just, I mean, it almost becomes, if it weren't so dire, it would seem comedic. For years, sheriffs will attempt to get Adams to pay up. His father will die a few years later. Adams will be responsible for his father's debts. Sheriffs will attempt to force him to pay out to make good on the debt, and often doing so by repossessing his property. And he'll be fending off the sheriffs, which he does in a very public, fierce public way. He'll take out ads in the paper saying, basically, you know, if you have to, if you try to repossess my estate, you're happy. The full, um, full force of the law will come down on your head. And the last sheriff who attempted to do this decided it was a bad idea, and you should too. And he takes a very forceful position, and that's why Hutchinson will say that this is the. This is the act that ushers Adams to center stage because it really sort of brings him out of the woodwork. But he fights this off for years. And ultimately, the issue simply falls away because other more critical issues have come to occupy everyone's attention. But a very efficient way of not writing letters to individual people is to start your own newspaper, although it's not a very profitable one, is it? It certainly wouldn't be in Samuel Adams's hands, would it? We don't know who funds the Independent Advertiser, which is the paper that he and some of his Confederates established over these years, but it does seem to be where he spent the bulk of his time in the in the years that follow. 
And in some cases, we can identify some of the pieces he wrote, most of which are odes to liberty, and many of them kind of covers of John Locke. There's a lot of his Harvard master's thesis, I think, that went into one of these issues. Most of what is written in these years in any newspaper is written under pseudonyms, so it can be very hard to decode who's writing what. But Adams does spend a great deal of the next years writing for a very short-lived, very opinionated newspaper, which is, is, is a short-lived paper, but which seems to have been read quite widely. He used so many pseudonyms. How many pseudonyms did you track down and, and attribute to him in the course of your research? So I count 30, and those are largely pseudonyms from the years when he's writing for the Boston Gazette, which was the most popular paper in Boston, much to Thomas Hutchinson's dismay. And I'm basing that on both pseudonyms that have been identified by his family later and by articles where he, which recapitulate or which repeat lines from his private correspondence. So I'm assuming if he's, because he, he recycles himself fairly often. So I'm assuming that those are he. My guess is that there are others that we just haven't located. It's hard to say because it was a slippery business, the pseudonym business. Sometimes people use the same pseudonyms as other people. And sometimes the pseudonyms, you know, we don't really know why he choose, chose which pseudonym. Sometimes they are chosen for very specific reason. But I suspect that there are others out there. One of the, one of the other ways to um, decipher where Adams is writing is, because, is from a fabulous newspaper collection which is held today by the Massachusetts Historical Society, which are these newspapers that were collected by a very enterprising Boston hardware store owner named Harbottle Door, who in 1765 just got a sense that something was happening around him and began to collect Boston newspapers and annotate them in his spare time. And he often in his columns will, in, in the margins of his columns, will identify S. Adams or Samuel Adams as the author of, of various pieces, which, which he applauds. He's, it's a really interesting collection in that you get to see how someone like Adams was being read and to see how much contempt there was or how much disdain there was for someone like Thomas Hutchinson, because Harbottle Door, this kind of man in the street, is waxing lyrical in his margins. How could you be anything but a hardware dealer with a name like Harbottle Door? It's, isn't it just the best name? It's just, especially the name Harbottle. It's, he, he, he does this, he makes this collection with this astonishing kind of crazy quilt of an index with, it's almost like a spiral of an index and you, you, you know, you fall into this stuff and you almost never come out because everything is cross-referenced and then cross-referenced again. But it's a, an utterly brilliant resource in terms of giving us a sense of, of just, you know, the perfume in the air of what people were reading and saying and talking about. I'm sure there are so many fabulous names you came across from this time. I think Harbottle might be the award winner, though. The problem with Samuel Adams is that, of course, when you Google Samuel Adams, you get the beer. And when you have an Adams in the archives, you often have the wrong Samuel Adams. There, just, there were many Samuel Adamses, actually. And in fact, there's a very charming letter in the New York Public Library collection where a Samuel Adams, who lives on the Cape, writes to writes to our Samuel Adams in the 1770s and says, I mean, I'm truly honored to share my name with such a patriot as you, but it is, it's a dangerous proposition having the name Samuel Adams these days. So he started the newspaper as the independent advertiser. At that point, what was his aim for the paper? It's really hard to say. We, we don't have really, we really have very little context for the paper. We know that he is valued in these years for his fluent pen. We know that he begins to burnish the prose of his associates and of his political mentor, 
um, James Otis. The paper is a very short-lived affair. Boston is a newspaper town. Presumably there was a sense that you would be able to sustain this kind of newspaper, which turns out to be unsustainable. And there is an editorial at the end of the newspaper's run, which is sort of a concession of defeat, which sounds just as if the as if the, the staff of this newspaper, the writers for this newspaper, were simply exhausted by this Herculean effort. And so how did this morph into the Gazette? The Gazette is run by two publishers who were actually, who seem to have had better heads for business, I should say. And, and theirs is really the, the paper of the town. Theirs is the paper that most everyone reads. And some of the writers for the Independent Advertiser clearly wind up writing for the Gazette. Why was John Mean considered a conceited empty noodle of a most profound blockhead? John Mead is a very enterprising Scot who comes to Boston, realizes that it's a highly literate and very sophisticated town, and immediately opens a bookstore and starts a newspaper, which are hugely successful, which are hugely, hugely popular. However, his politics are pretty much the antithesis of Samuel Adams's politics. So Mead's paper is essentially the opposition paper. It's the paper that supports government. And he takes very unpopular stances in the minds of Samuel Adams and his colleagues to the point where all kinds of pretty nasty imputations go back and forth between the between the two camps. And, and John Means seems to be, if I'm, I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, but he seems to somewhat relish his role as provocateur, which was not a role from which Samuel Adams shied either. He was starter of one of the, the first libraries in town, wasn't he? That's right. It's, he's, it's apparently a very successful library. Adams uses on him a piece of logic he uses on on others, which is how dare someone come here and be favored by the town because means business was lucrative, you know, be so much that be so frequented by the town and yet turn on the town's best interests in his newspaper. But it's always up to debate what is the town's best interest. <laughs> in Samuel Adams's mind, there was no debate, but yes. <laughs> so in looking back at the population figures from Boston at the time, around 15,000 people. So, you know, we think of contemporary Boston being one of the great metropolises of America, but all of these great minds were so concentrated in this such small town. New England is interesting in the sense that it's obviously it's a newspaper capital. Um, Boston is a newspaper capital, as, as we've said. It's a highly educated corner of the colonies, for, because education has been valued from the start, because of course, in order to pray, one had to read. So this is a very literate corner of the colonies. It also in these years is in decline economically, which may contribute to something as well. Um, the population is in decline. Boston has been overtaken from a trade point of view by Philadelphia and by New York. So it is um, on the one hand, a very vocal colony. And on the other hand, a colony that's feeling a, a certain sense of desperation. And was this what made it such a hotbed for the cause of liberty? I think that there is an independent-minded, starchy, religious piece of this, certainly. You have a, people who are schooled in the idea that churches do not need leaders and states do not need kings, but that that coupled with the economic uh, distress and the fact that you have this tremendous communication system, both in the newspapers and ultimately in the committees of correspondence, I think all of those things will add up to a sort of yes, will ferment very nicely when put together. What were the majority congregations and denominations in that area for faith? Some Anglicans, you have some Baptists, you have some Quakers, but it's it's primarily still a Puritan town. And it tends to be the case that the crown officials 
are worshiping in the Anglican church. So that Thomas Hutchinson at a certain point when he is promoted to the governorship will make the decision to worship both in his initial congregation and with the Anglicans, sort of just deciding to sort of split the difference so that he can keep a foot in both camp, which is interesting because it's one of the few things for which Adams, who attacks Hutchinson for almost everything else, never attacks him. Well, Stacy, you've mentioned Hutchinson several times, but I think we're going to have to wait until our next episode until we find out about more of this crown governor for Massachusetts. Do you mind coming back and spend another half hour with us? I would be delighted. I love a Thomas Hutchinson cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time. Stacy Schiff is the author of The Revolutionary, a biography about the founding father, Samuel Adams, which is published by Little Brown. Come back next time as we carry our conversation into his personal life and the revolution. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.